0: Welcome to the Sweet Fly Paper Podcast. My name is Marquis Stilwell. And I'm Neil Ramsey. This week we have Signey Nielsen. She's an amazing landscape architect. Founder and principal at Matthews Nielsen Landscape Architects. So excited to have her, her work. You may not always know it, but most of us have definitely walked through or picnicked at and sat at. One of her extraordinary
1: pieces of work, Marquise. Didn't you work with her on the Lowline? Yeah, we're recently in Miami getting the Underline. That's right.
0: Yeah. No, we were part of the founding board of the Lowline and spent seven plus years meandering all the different concepts and ideas. And she was extraordinary in creating what was called the Lowline Lab where we actually brought the concept
1: inside Essex Market on the Lower East Side. So mm. yeah, it was an amazing project. As you know, I'm an advocate for design, not just in the built environment, but for the power of design, which you know social practice in various other forms. But also it could be a strong sentiment from my side, but I'll say it anyway, that looking around the built environment, you know, design for profit, I call it a slow <laughs> urban genocide. Yes and that we really need to start thinking about designing for people and the places and the uh, community engagement in these projects. It's significant, it's fantastic to see.
0: Yeah. You think about what's going on on the commercial side, um, development within cities, I think this is the opportunity to think about the landscape, right? Do we need the buildings? Do we need as many buildings? And we certainly don't need as much concrete and, and parking. And I think that too many times landscape is added as finishing, Mm -hmm. like, hey, let's just add some trees. And it'd be nice for us to start thinking more deeply about what is our relationship between us and the land that we walk
1: through and enjoy. Sure. Recently, I just posed the question to a landscape architect, um, just from a very sort of humble and very naive point of view. But... Even in my experience in the development world, as you know, uh, one of the things I've been really thinking about, and I spoke to them about this, and I said, you know, I think we really have this backwards. I think we should be designing and looking at the landscape first, and then placing buildings once it's been optimized from a landscape architect point of view. They loved the idea. Yeah. But from the development side, I know that was just, I laughed out of town. (laughs) Like, no. But coming back to that future thinking, I think that these are ways that we can look at other approaches and look to see alternatives of how things are done. Absolutely. And I think that's really important. I think that's one of them because landscape architecture, well, let's we'll, we'll hear her speak.
0: <laughs> yeah. So let's jump right in. Signe Nelson. So, Signe, it's so wonderful to be speaking with you. Thanks for joining me today.
2: It is absolutely my pleasure.
0: I've had the pleasure of knowing you for a few years now, working with you on the low line. It was a pleasure in just seeing you in action. And from watching you, I know that you list yourself as a landscape architect, but I know that you do so many things and just the way you think. So why don't you describe what you do and who you are beyond just checking the box? I'd, I'd love to hear how you describe yourself.
2: Well, I am officially a landscape architect. But over the years that I've been doing this, I've come to realize that some of the things that I did early in my life in college, for example, where I was a political science major, the upbringing I had from my parents who were deeply involved in social causes and racial justice, that these have come back very powerfully in my mind, in addition to living through the 60s in New York City, I feel as if many things have sort of coalesced. Mm -hmm. So a very strong part of who I am as a person and who I am as a design leader of the firm, I'm one of three partners, the remaining founding partner, is to embark on advocacy whenever there is an opportunity. And it doesn't have to be a very obvious opportunity. We can make them up too, but it's really to encourage our clients to think about community engagement, for example, in a much more deeply meaningful way. Most scopes of work have some community engagement as part of it, but it's more like checking the boxes, as you just said. Yeah. And so that's something that we really try to do and explain what it means to have people at the table with us, not us just talking at people, not just presenting to people, but having them as part of the process. So that's certainly one of our firm's core values, something I believe in deeply. And then that will oftentimes fold into where I see the need for advocacy on a specific project. I don't start a project and go, aha. I'm gonna use this project to change this. No, that's not the way it works. The way it works is that it's an evolutionary process of listening to people and learning about the site and then realizing how we could make a difference and then what needs to change in order for us to make that difference.
0: Yeah, no, it's amazing. Through your experience, I mean I've I've seen you in meetings and it's amazing to watch how convincing you can be with your perspective and your experience to those who are just starting their career, what advice do you give to them to hold developers and others accountable for this type of work that you do?
2: Uh, it's interesting that you asked that question because yesterday was my last uh, lecture. Probably know I teach at Pratt Institute in the school of architecture. Yep, yep. So it was my last class to them. And I said, you know, I'm, It's actually been a very good semester, I think, in spite of the virtual format. Uh, And I said, I want to leave you with a couple of thoughts. And one of them was what it means to be an architect when you leave school and that it's much more than form and that never forget who you're designing for. And that is for people. You're not designing uh, just to make yourself happy. You're not designing to come up with uh, some new form that's never been invented before, at the end of the day, if people aren't in the forefront of your thinking, and the forefront of the way you conceive of space, then you are really not living up to your potential as an architect. If you want to be a theoretical architect or, you you know, whatever, that's fine. But if you're going to be a practicing architect that builds things, please keep people in mind. So that was That was one of my things that I would just say to anyone starting out is uh, your education has probably not focused so much on people. It's probably focused more on design and form and technical issues, but open the door wider and let the world of ideas and people's opinions come in. That's one thing. The other thing, I guess, is it's a challenging moment to enter the design field but I do feel as if we are on the cusp of all kinds of change and I think if we can learn some lessons there are many lessons to have been learned in the past at least one year let's keep those in perspective let's not overreact uh, and assume that henceforth we have to stay six feet away from each other but let's think about you know what are the ramifications of a more uh, diverse and open society, uh, one that really invites diversity, puts equity in the forefront. These are things now that I'm hearing among the faculty, it comes up in all the faculty meetings. It's changed a lot of the types of projects that the students have been engaged in. So I feel as if it's a pivotal moment and this needs to continue. And when I talked about the 60s before, I talked about it with regret that when I saw what happened this summer in particular, after the murders of George Floyd and others, it brought back to me um, what happened and what I observed in the 60s. Hmm. And in so many ways, I felt, I feel that many things haven't changed. And that, that makes me very sorrowful. And I hope that the fact that so many people seem to have been galvanized by the situation, including just observing my staff, you know, sort of 30 something people, it gave me great hope that this has penetrated deeper into society and that there will be change forthcoming.
0: Yeah, no, that's beautiful. Yeah. I think that this summer, um, has brought about you know summer 2020 brought about a lot of change a lot of awakening and as designers and architect you know we've all been trying to go deeper in our practice and understanding what is our responsibility when it comes to public space uh, which you do a lot of work on, what does that mean I mean from your experience through the 60s and 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 all the way up to this time you know public space has been this contentious space sometimes, um, you know, from protesters, from who owns that public, who has a right to that. How, from a design standpoint, do you think about, again, this idea of advocacy and and the work that you do when you're creating public space?
2: That's a lot of of questions I see there. Um, (laughs) One thing I'll, I'll say is that I feel as if one of the lessons learned from the past year is the importance of public space. It's not a, I mean, I, what I'm very happy to see is that many people are recognizing this, not just landscape architects, businesses design of public space. But now we're seeing developers, um, people of all kinds uh, recognizing the value, politicians, other designers recognizing the value of public space. And of course, the public is recognizing the value of public space using it in ways that perhaps we had not thought about in a while. So, for example, places where people can gather in times of stress, where they can communicate with each other in an environment that is more healthful, where they can uh, recreate, where they can protest. These are things that we haven't seen happen in public space, in a long time. They've happened before. As I said, they certainly happened in the 60s and 70s, but not in probably a generation or two have we seen public space take on the importance, I think, that it has both from a health standpoint as well as from a political expression uh, standpoint.
0: Yeah, yeah. I know in working with you and being on the board with you at the low line, we talked a lot about, public space that allowed for communities to gather um, for people to actually convene and one thing that we were always talking about and I am going to frame it in a different way than maybe what we have talked about in the past was this idea of evidence of communities seeing themselves in the work um, I'm couching it as this idea of evidence of existence because I think that Black Lives Matters and others it's pretty much what they're asking, right? They're asking, hey, I want you to recognize me. Um, it's what women um, are asking, you know, look at me in a way that you see who I am as a person and how, when we're designing public space and the work that we're doing, how can we weave storytelling? I know that a lot of the work that I've seen that you've done, it's definitely, I can see the stories when you're, working through a project and you're working with so many different people, developers and other people that are in architect space, how do you actually think about storytelling?
2: One of the things that is uh, very true about me is that I do not arrive at a project with a concept. I arrive as a somewhat of a blank slate, I would say. And I immerse myself to the best that I can in the place and the people who occupy that place or even may occupy that place in the future and in the history of the place. I you know, was a liberal arts major in college and am a big student of history and love history. So that's important. And that history may be a natural history. It's maybe a social history. So I try to dig deep. And then I try to see what of those stories still resonate. Sometimes, I I mean, I've worked in neighborhoods where, let's just say it has a certain uh, cultural overlay, but over time, that culture has been replaced by another culture. And so I remember being asked specifically on that project to promote the culture that really doesn't exist any longer in that neighborhood. It does economically but it doesn't really from the standpoint of the people who reside there. And I found that to be a conflict that it was hard to work around. In other words, I did not want to put all kinds of national, uh, it's hard to say this without identifying <laughs> the cultures, but. Right, right. No, no, I get it. The beauty of New York is that it changes all the time. and Many cities change all the time, Right, but waves of newcomers are changing neighborhoods all the time. so. For me, it's a mistake to lock a place into a particular cultural narrative. Sometimes we are asked to do that, however, and for me, it has to resonate over a period of time and with people who currently occupy the neighborhood and who may occupy it in the future. How do you do that?
0: Because you're—I mean, you're, you've always been a straight shooter, which is I love why you—you say it how it is and. How do you actually navigate that? Because you had to push back. And I know that you've had to push back in a number of your projects. And what is that word that you say to your students and and other people who are listening? What advice would you give them saying, hey, here's the integrity line. This is where you stand.
2: (laughs) It's much easier in my mind to weave a story around physical history or environmental history. I make a case for those histories because I do believe that they are enduring and they can resonate and try to speak about that as the glue of a place. Yeah. I'll give you an example. We're working on a wonderful project on the Lower East Side in Chinatown, Pier 42. The community is very heavily Asian, but there also is a large Latino population as well. And it has, of course, changed over the years. My grandparents, when they came from Russia, that's where they moved into. So it's a place in transition, always has been. And so when we were coming up with our various design alternatives, some of them were very kind of culturally specific. Some of them were very sort of white-centric in terms of certain kinds of sports, for example. And at the end of the day, The community, and I mean this very, very broadly, we spoke to all the folks who lived in the public housing, we spoke to the Chinese American community, we spoke to the community board, schools, etc. At the end of the day, what everyone could agree on was the uh, notion that the park speak to the ecology of the site, speak to resilience, because that neighborhood had been very badly traumatized by Hurricane Sandy. and so. In other words, what I did was offer another narrative to get off of the sort of culturally specific narrative.
0: Yeah. And uniting that, you know, I think that this is what I go back to evidence because there are certain neighborhoods that may not have material evidence of their existence. They may not have anything that speaks to the fact that they've been there. Mm -hmm. Even the renaming of, you know, certain neighborhoods, um, whether it's Harlem, you know, South Harlem, we've been going through this changing of the tide. How have you thought about that in reference to, again, public space, how people are existing, how people are exchanging in those spaces when there may not be any physical or environmental placemaking that actually said that, hey, I'm here and I've been here for a while. And we don't we don't want to stereotype say, "Hey, let's put some graffiti up. let's right. you know let's do something that almost puts it into more of a caricature, right? But I've seen how you've looked at projects and woven in again some of these ideas of story, even when it comes to treatment of how people are sitting, how plants are planted, um, making sure that people feel invited. Those are some of the aspects that I really love about your work. But again, I'd love to hear more when it comes to you having to fight for some of those moments. How have you been able to actually say, hey, here's a project I can be proud of because you were able to hold that space? Do you have examples of of some of those projects that went right, some of those projects that maybe went wrong?
2: Well, I, I think you started out actually speaking to something that is a little different than what I was speaking about before, because I was really speaking about a contemporary cultural situation. I see. You're speaking about, I think, something that I've been reading a great deal about, which is people who lived in a place, occupied a place, whether they're Native Americans or whether they are Black slaves who had a huge Impact on a place, but have now been erased.
0: Yes, yes.
2: That is another story. Yes. And that's not about kind of current waves of cultural change. That's a very, very different. It's bringing forth with meaning. So we are working on a project right now, actually at my alma mater, in which the Native American students have brought to the fore successfully the fact that the site of the college was Native American land and that they were thrown off of it and murdered by colonists in the 1700s. So we are in the process of trying to uh, figure out How to recommend, we're obviously not going to design anything, I just want you to know that. We are in the process of figuring out a way how we can recommend that the Native American history be acknowledged. So there are, with some of the Native students, in addition to some tribal elders who still exist largely in New Hampshire and Vermont, my alma mater is in Massachusetts but those tribal elders exist and for them to work together to decide what they feel is appropriate. Some of the things that we've talked about or they've talked about, and we've also suggested are perhaps a garden of some kind that would be a place of reflection, a place where those students could go and engage in certain rituals and spiritual practices where they have some level of at least visual privacy so that they feel able and unconstrained. That's one idea. Another idea is to make it more overt, if you will, where students of all cultures across the campus are, I don't mean this in a negative way, but are confronted, in fact, with the realization that the college is occupying Native land, yeah, and that may mean, for example, putting certain sayings on every single building. It may mean having a certain kind of uh, agriculture there's a lot of history that is still extant. Mind you, what we have come to realize is that that history has all been written by white people. And so it's made me deeply recognize, that this is something that I can lead, but I can't or don't want to, it's not appropriate for me to dictate. Yeah. So we're trying to set up the mechanisms, create the opportunities for these spaces on campus, whatever they might end up being, and to really, I would say, put into motion the fact that the college must act on this. This is not something that they can brush under the rug. This is a 20-year master plan. Wow. And so we're we're essentially doing a setting out a process.
0: That's an amazing project. Yeah, that's what I was speaking of. And I've seen and I've heard you um, in conversations think about that level of integrity. That's definitely a word. When I think of you and the work and seeing you in meetings, you've always held this space for integrity and knowing when a project is something that you do, something someone else should do. How, again, I go back to listeners and students, you've had time to be able to reflect and learn how to do that. What would you say is that the future of this field, of landscape architecture, of design, what do you believe is the future when you talk to your students? What do you see? What are you hoping that they aspire to become and, and the work that you'll see from them?
2: Well, I guess one thing I say to students is that an architectural or landscape architectural education is a great education. It teaches you and exposes you to so many different aspects of culture and history and natural science and physics. It's just this wonderful combination. And then on top of all of that is what is design, how you put these various pieces together, and of course, how you put them together. Uh, with regard to a program and or a site, so I want to give students the hope that not everybody is going to be, you know, the next uh, great architect of the world. Those people are few and far between, but there are many, many ways that you can use this broad education in other ways, and that it is a it is a beautiful, expansive education that you can continue to learn every single day. You'll never repeat the same steps you took before. And that, honestly, is what keeps me going, is that no two jobs are alike, no two (laughs) sites are alike, no two clients, no two everything. So for me, that's what makes it fascinating. But what I want to encourage students to uh, realize is that there are many avenues that they can take if, in fact, they find that either working in an office doesn't really uh, appeal to them or that they find themselves, perhaps they're not as good a designer as they had hoped. And so what else could they do that there are lots of fields? So that's one of the things I say to my students. But in terms of where I think the profession or the design fields are going right now, I think we have a moment to seize here. and. I would hope that we move forward as designers with a much bigger basket of issues that we are folding into our design thinking. Mm -hmm. Too often you see people limiting the uh, number of influences on their design so that it comes out as this kind of pure thing that they had hoped. And sometimes that's driven by the client and sometimes it's driven by the designer. But I just feel like, like doors. There are lots of doors. And we have to keep those doors open right. as long as possible to make sure that we have included all of the influences. Yeah. And that includes historical influences, cultural, et cetera, et cetera. Influences.
0: Yeah. Well, Sydney, I always love talking with you and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to hang and talk and, you know, drop knowledge as you always do. Oh, it's
2: my pleasure. (laughs) Just hearing your voice makes me calm. I want you to know.
0: (laughs) I try. I can't wait till we can collaborate. I'm really looking forward to that day because I admire everything that you do and really appreciate it. So thanks again for being here. Really appreciate the time that you took to hang out and uh, drop a lot of good knowledge.
2: Oh, it's a pleasure to speak with you, Marquis. Thank you for those great questions. They were many ideas in a bottle.
0: This has been the Sweet Flat Paper Podcast. For more episodes, follow the Sweet Flat Paper wherever you're listening right now. Special thanks to my good friend and collaborator, Neil Ramsey. The Sweet Flat Paper Podcast is produced by Olu & Company, edited by Jag and Detroit, with original music by Jay Daniel.